Hello. Working as I now do with the NHS, I of course take a much closer interest in cases of medical negligence or criminality. The whole country was shocked not only by the conviction of child murderer Lucy Letby, but the allegations of managerial complacency and cover-up. Just a few weeks later, the compelling testimony of Meropia Mills about the death of her daughter led to a government commitment to enact Martha's Law. Sometime next year, with the final report of the infected blood inquiry, we're likely to be reminded of one of the worst medical scandals of modern times, one which led to the death and serious illness of thousands of people in the UK alone. A scandal that can be traced back to the 1970s, but yet in the minds of many of its victims has still not been fully accounted for, openly, honestly. Today on Forward Vision, I'll speak with the author of a powerful and very moving account of that scandal. You're listening to Forward Vision with Matthew Taylor, the podcast to help you think differently, feel differently and lead differently. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. So I'm delighted to welcome Kara McGugan, who's the author of The Poison Line, a true story of death, deception and infected blood. Cara, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on and thank you for reading. Yeah, it's a very powerful book and I want to get into the failures that you identify and what we can kind of learn from those. But before I do so, just tell me a bit about the challenges of writing this book. It's clearly a a labour of love. It must have taken over your life for many years. Yes, so I actually started with this project back in 2019, the week that the infected blood inquiry opened after decades-long wait for many of the survivors. And that week I wrote two features for The Telegraph and it really stayed with me. I barely felt I'd got to know what had actually happened here or scratched the surface of wrongdoing. And so when I made the second series of my podcast, Bed of Lies, I thought we had to do it on this story. And from there, it really just, you know, the further you dig into the infected blood scandal, the more you find and the worse it gets. And so I just kept going. And after the podcast, I managed to get hold of all of the court documents and evidence that were used for a trial in America where two of the pharmaceutical companies who made this infected product, Factor 8 for haemophilia, which was contaminated with HIV and hepatitis C, managed to get all the documents that were used in that trial and so I just had a wealth more evidence to dig through as well as that in the UK which has come out over the last four or five years through the inquiry. See I've spent a lot of time speaking to survivors which is very very painful and digging through thousands of pages of documents. So that issue of talking to survivors I particularly was interested in because in a sense the timeline here it's almost the most awkward time to talk to people, I guess. If something's happened, I don't know, 60, 70 more years ago, then people may still be affected by it, but it feels like it's history. Or if something's happening now, then people are embroiled in it. But this involved you talking to people who who might have wanted in some ways to move on in their lives, but you are asking them to go back to the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Was that a challenge, getting people to go back who might have in some ways wanted to move on? It's actually very interesting, the fact the book spans Britain and America. 
And in the UK, where survivors have had to really fight tooth and nail to get any form of justice and answers for what happened to them, this is also real and raw still. So they've been compiling their witness statements to the public inquiry in the last few years, speaking to lawyers, some of them doing press. And so for them, it feels so present. So it's very painful, but it's also very contemporary in a way. And so for some of them, digging through those memory boxes is incredibly hard. Frankie is one character who comes to mind, who she said, I want to talk about this once and then I need to not talk about it again. And I will only talk about it at the public inquiry. I don't want to do it at home because I can't bring this to my now home, which is my sort of safe space. But she said that in talking about it, it was part of her healing process in giving it to someone else who cared and was going to take that and give it to a wider audience. That was helpful for her. But in America, this story was almost put to bed in the 90s, end of the 90s for some. And those families have had the ability to move forward to try and rebuild their lives, having lost children, having lost wives, been widowed. And for them, it was different because you're going back to their traumatic past. But for them, it was also nice to be able to kind of talk about those loved ones they lost and bring back their memories and look through photos. And as painful as it was, they still want the general public to know what happened to them. Yeah, and the stories that you tell are so poignant. And to lose somebody is terrible in any circumstances. But what the people that you spoke to often had to go through was to be given a death sentence or for their child, their loved ones to be given a death sentence and then to not be able to do anything as that person gradually became more and more ill and eventually died. And then even beyond that, if they were in a relationship with that person, potentially to have that illness themselves. I mean, these are really harrowing stories. Yeah, it's truly awful what people went through. And to speak to them now and to see how they endured through that and ways that they found to continue with their lives is very moving. And it kind of teaches you a lot about human resilience and especially those who are now still fighting for answers, even though many decades have passed. But also, as their loved ones were dying, they were hugely stigmatised because this was mm. in the height of the AIDS crisis. So they didn't get the normal compassion and care from the community around them that you would have had. So they've dealt with a sort of double trauma of this awful thing happening to them or their loved ones and then also being put upon by the society around them. So for some, really, it's the only time they felt able to talk about what happened because... They feel that that shame, that stigma has been relinquished in the recent years. Yes, and I'm old enough to remember that time, Cara, the kind of gay plague kind of hysteria of the 1980s, the levels of ignorance and fear that were around. And, and so, you're, of course, you're right, that stigma was an extra injury on top of what else was happening. So, Cara, what I want to do is is reading the book, and you might not agree with this way of breaking it up, but stick with it. I, I want to look at, I think, six different elements of what went wrong. And I'm just interested in your kind of interpretation of each of these. You know, to what extent was it negligence? Was it criminality? Where do you think the responsibility lies? So I want to talk about the initial lack of caution by pharmaceutical companies and this is where the book starts actually with the collection 
of donations. I want to talk then about, in the UK in particular, the lack of caution in terms of an awareness of these risks, which goes right back to the 1970s. Then I want to talk about the tests on children that took place without consent or the warning of the dangers. Then the failure to respond to the evidence of HIV. Then afterwards, the failure to acknowledge harms or adequately compensate. And then finally, and this, of course, is what takes us to the full kind of 40, 50 years of this story, is the failure until very recently to undertake a full public inquiry. So let's start with where the book starts, and that is the process by which pharmaceutical companies collected plasma, which ultimately ends up being part of the factor eight, which infects people, the way in which they did that, the kind of negligence that seemed to be involved in that. Yes. So as you say, the pharmaceutical companies took inordinate risks with where they collected the plasma for factor eight. In the 70s, you have what another author, Douglas Starr, called the wildcat days of plasma. And this is where these plasma companies based in the US went around the country and over into South America, across the world to countries in Africa and paid people for their plasma. I think it's helpful to add here that in America, it's legal to pay for plasma, whereas in many other countries, including Britain, we see that as unethical. So you can't pay people for a plasma donation. But in paying people, the pharmaceutical companies in America were able to make huge amounts of money and also rake in massive supplies of plasma. And so in Nicaragua, you had this place that was called the House of the Vampires, where it was the largest plasma centre in the world, bleeding hundreds of people every day and selling that plasma back to companies that were going to turn it into a medical product. But in doing this race for plasma, the companies went into prisons and allowed prisoners to basically run the plasma centres with very little oversight, allegations of people having sex and shooting drugs before they went on the table to donate. If they turned yellow, which was a sign of having hepatitis, they were able to just bribe their way back into donating plasma with the currency of a cigarette. And it was lucrative for prisoners because selling their plasma got them more money to spend in the canteen than any other jobs within the prison. There was also with hepatitis rife and the search for an early hepatitis B vaccine and antibody treatment, they actually wanted to collect plasma that had hepatitis. And so they also went to STD clinics on Skid Row and had mobile trucks outside gay nightclubs where they knew that they would get altruistic donors who had a higher chance of having hepatitis. And so in this, it's obviously the profit motive that drives it. One of my favourite books of social policy, Richard Titmus's The Gift Relationship, which was written before any of this, he makes the point that the reason that a system in which you don't pay people, you rely on volunteers, is much better than one that you pay people, is you don't create incentives for people to donate blood who shouldn't be donating blood. And as you argue again at the end of the book, still in America, which still exports plasma, still a multi-billion dollar business, it is still the case that people are being incentivized, poor people are being incentivized to give their blood. So even though there are more safeguards in place and there are ways of treating plasma, we don't know what future risks there are down the line. So this danger, the inherent danger of incentivizing poor people to give blood, that continues. Yeah, there's a deep element of exploitation to it, as well as the health risks and potential dangers. 
impoverished people are still in America living off the proceeds of selling their plasma. And you can donate plasma twice a week in America, whereas in Britain you can only donate twice a month. And there hasn't been any real long-term studies into what the consequences of donating your plasma that regularly are for those donors. So yeah, there's huge risks of exploitation in the system. Also, unfortunately, it's the case that even today, after this tragedy scandal of the 1980s, because we don't pay people for plasma, we do not collect enough plasma ourselves. I say we, it's countries who ban paying for plasma. In Britain, we actually only just allow plasma donations again a couple of years ago because of the overhang of VCJD. Many countries who ban the paying for plasma actually still rely on paid-for American plasma because we don't collect enough ourselves. So there's a sort of moral dilemma there of we wouldn't do it at home, but we will happily still use it. Yeah, so I take the lesson from this first problem, the problem of the risks taken by pharma companies in terms of the collection of plasma. I see that as just a reminder of the fact that when we're dealing with life and death issues, when we have organisations that have a profit motive and when we incentivize individuals, that's why we need regulation. Because when human safety drives you in a different direction to the profit motive or to people's need for money, you need rules to avoid the kind of thing that happens. So let's take us to the second kind of element of this story, which was that way before HIV, way before we get into the 80s, there were people in Britain and other countries who said that there was something inherently problematic about Factor Eight, about the fact that A, it was taken from dodgy sources, but B, just the fact of putting donations from tens of thousands of people all together so that when you had an infusion, you were taking on the collective risks of such a large group of people. That There were people warning that this was problematic way before we get into the HIV territory, and they were just ignored. What do you take from that, Cara? Yes, that's really a failure of the regulatory system. The person who actually created Factor 8 turned around to the pharmaceutical company that he was working for and said, this is dangerous. We need to be trying to kill viruses in this product before we can put it out there. A similar treatment that was made out of plasma albumin in the 60s, they'd found ways to treat it with heat and chemicals that would kill viruses within it. But there was an idea that basically proliferated that the factor eight protein itself was too vulnerable to withstand any of those treatments. But rather than invest in actually trying to see if that would work, they just said it won't work. And people with haemophilia have already been exposed to hepatitis, which was the main risk in the 70s and 60s that they knew about through their earlier treatment, cryoprecipitate, which was made from the plasma of one person per treatment. And so the regulator said, yes, we agree with you. Although they'd initially said, we're a bit concerned about this, they gave it a license without the need for any treatment. And the person who had come up with it, Dr. Edward Shambrom, ended up being demoted from his position at the company and eventually leaving because he had tried to raise these concerns. So those early voices of dissent were pretty much shut down. You also had 
leading figures in the haematology world in America who were writing back to Britain and saying, don't take our American product. It's too risky. And again, here, it wasn't listened to. So these voices just went unheard. And there's a link here, isn't there, with what we've just talked about, because part of the reason these voices weren't heard were the incentives that clinicians and others had because of their close relationship with the pharmaceutical industry. So uh, again, I think lessons here first is it is worth listening to people, particularly when we're talking about these kinds of risks who have a reasonable authority who say that there are issues that need to be attended to. But also, it's important that decision makers are not compromised. Now, with the rules about what pharmaceutical companies are allowed to pay for have changed a lot since then. But clearly, and this is a theme in your book, the relationship between clinicians and pharmaceutical companies was too close and is part of this story. Yes, definitely. The relationship between the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies drives a lot of the problems. But in there, I think there's a nuance to add, which is, so factor eight was billed as this miracle treatment for haemophilia. It was a concentrated form of the protein that haemophiliacs lack in their blood in order to clot. And so where cryoprecipitate contained many proteins and many impurities, this was basically giving them exactly what they needed. And so it really did revolutionise people with haemophilia's lives, allowing them to all of a sudden go mountain climbing or kayaking, things that they would have never been able to dream of. Their ancestors had died from having a tooth extraction, but they could live much more normal lives. And I think what happened was the pharmaceutical companies, those who worked there, the doctors and patients were all sort of wrapped up in the miracle of this, that they were then also easily blinded to its risks. Yeah, no, I think that's a really powerful point, Cara, that kind of sense of a collective view that this was a miracle drug and over and over again you provide evidence in the book of clinicians saying look the benefits of this are so great that we've just got to ignore the risks and this goes on all the way into the period when we're aware of the risks of of HIV. Let's move to a third part of the story which is again something that starts to happen I think before AIDS and that's the children at a particular school where children with haemophilia were sent in order to be safer being the subject of trials which actually involved infecting them without them being told about those trials and told about the risks of those trials and indeed very often not finding out for years, even decades later. Yes, so Trelaws was a specialist school for children with disabilities and they started taking on pupils with haemophilia with an on-site haemophilia centre where suddenly these children who had had to spend weeks of their lives going to hospital and missing school, could have that care on site in the middle of the night if they needed, throughout lessons, and then return to class. And they were surrounded by peers who had been in the same situation, so understood. So they made friends and and had wonderful experiences that they had missed out on. But they were also essentially a captive audience, a group of children being treated day in, day out, who could be monitored. And that was exploited. One of the most significant trials was the hepatitis study. And that was nationwide, but it was looking at which brands of factor eight gave patients hepatitis and did some give it with a more prevalence. And pretty quickly, it appeared that the American imported products were more risky for hepatitis. But rather than stopping using them, the doctors continued with more studies and they were employing patients who'd never been treated with 
factor eight before, known as PUPs or previously untreated patients, in order to see if an injection would give them hepatitis. But the issues of consent here are huge because they weren't asked if they consented to being part of these studies. The doctors just enrolled them. The children at Trelaws, when the parents sent them to the school, the doctors almost took that as automatically, well, they're now in my care, so I can choose what treatment to give them without running it past their parents or the pupils themselves. So many of them were put onto trials, were switched treatment. There's one student, Richard Warwick, who his parents asked for him to only be treated with cryobulin, which was made with plasma collected in Europe. And very quickly, within a couple of months at the school, he was being given American products and his treatment just continued to change based on whatever the doctors wanted to treat him with. So again, obviously the rules around consent to participation in trials have changed, but I think this part of your story, Cara, is important because... For example, in relation to issues around data at the moment and the degree to which it's important to get people's consent before their data is collected and shared. And as I say, the world has moved on, but yet it is a really important reminder of how people with, I guess, good intentions are wanting to make medical discoveries are ultimately wanting to improve people's lives, but they treat people as kind of cogs in, in that machine with terrible consequences. So let's move on to another element. And I think, again, here there's a resonance. And this is the failure in the UK. And by the way, I'm picking out various elements. of The book goes a lot wider than the things I'm picking out. But this goes, I think, to the conversations we're having in the COVID inquiry. Because this is the fact that when the evidence of HIV, and indeed the evidence that HIV was spread through blood, started to come through into the UK, there was a fatal delay between that evidence starting to arrive, being known about other countries starting to act on it, and us in the UK taking it seriously. I mean, this is a matter of a few months, maybe a year or so, but yet still a lot of people will have been infected in that period of complacency and denial. Yeah, so from July 1982, the first signs that this new disease, which was known as GRID then, gay-related immune deficiency, could affect people with haemophilia, emerged in America when three haemophiliacs came down with symptoms. It was then given its new name, AIDS, and doctors in the UK first discussed it in September 1982. But what we see from September 1982 to the spring of 1983, evidence is growing that perhaps this new AIDS could be transmitted through blood. People don't want to believe that. There's lots of theories about what could be causing it. But the cases in people with haemophilia are really a sign that it is most likely transmitted through blood. But here, we really just didn't want to hear that. Our leading haemophilia doctor was denying the connections, Professor Arthur Bloom. In government, the health minister, Ken Clark, was taking the word of Professor Arthur Bloom rather than the word of the leading epidemiologist, Dr. Spence Galbraith. And he delayed and delayed in saying that AIDS could be transmitted by blood so that in September 1983, the Department of Health puts out a statement saying it could be transmitted through blood, but there's no conclusive evidence. And we continue to use that line, no conclusive evidence, all the way until 1984 when HTLV3 was discovered. But within that time, although scientific knowledge is slow moving, we really had developed the conclusion that AIDS was transmitted by an agent in blood long before the Department of Health officially took that on board. 
Yeah, so I think the lesson here and this podcast car is, is aimed towards kind of leaders, people interested in leadership, is to have that kind of leadership capacity to stop the conveyor belt when somebody raises an alarm and not to just treat things as business as usual, but to say, hang on, well, no, if this is true, this is really very, very serious. And had ministers, senior officials, as it were, stopped the conveyor belt, brought people together in a room and said, look, let's hear all the different perspectives on this and let's go through it. They might have acted more quickly and they might have saved more lives. 100%. There was a letter that arrived in the Department of Health from the leading epidemiologist in May 1983. And he said, we need to stop importing American blood products. And rather than getting him into the room and getting Professor Arthur Bloom into the room and discussing it, the suggestion was proposed that they could create this AIDS council, but it was quickly dismissed. And that didn't then happen for another few years. One judge who has looked at this in another country said what really failed in this story is the precautionary approach and the idea that you should err on the side of caution rather than just persisting. So here what really failed was rather than fear and safety pushing decisions, instead it was well, we don't want to stop treating patients. We've already got these deals to import this product. We don't have enough resources to make it ourselves. So it's better to just push on. Mm. And that's another part of the story, which is that obviously in medicine, we always have to manage risks. But the problem was that the risks were not being discussed explicitly and openly. There was a secret conversation taking place. And in that secret conversation, people were saying the risks of not giving people factor eight, given that it had all these benefits that you've described, are greater than the risks of infection through hepatitis or then through HIV. Now, it is a perfectly reasonable thing to have gone public about that and said to haemophiliac, saying to people, look, what do you want to do here with the balance risk? But that wasn't what happened. These were secret conversations that took place. People didn't know the risks that were involved. That links to my kind of penultimate kind of line of inquiry, Cara, with you, which is the failure when things were known about. So, you know, from the mid-80s, we know all about this. There's no mystery to this. I'm not a scientist, but I fully understood what is going on here. You know, that people have donated who have got an illness. It goes into these, into factor eight, where tens of thousands of people's donations are accumulated and a very, very high rate of infection for people who get that. It's all pretty clear cut. And yet, it takes so long for the harms to be fully acknowledged or for anything like, and certainly this is the case in the UK, different in other countries, but for adequate compensation. What do you put that down to, Cara? Is it just money? Is it that the government just did not want to recognise this because they knew how much it would cost? Was it complacency? Was it bureaucracy? Was it the fact that the politicians in charge changed, the nature of the pharmaceutical companies changed, so it was difficult to ever say who is responsible? I think the story changes over the years and with different governments, but you have the same civil servants in the Department of Health that carry that through. But what happens in the 80s immediately is that Margaret Thatcher does not want to provide compensation. She's very against that. And Ken Clark, her minister, is fully behind her with that. They don't want to open up this American-style system where something goes wrong in healthcare and immediately patients sue. And they feared that by compensating people with haemophilia, that's what would happen. There was also this awful thought that went round that people were going to die because they had HIV AIDS. And in the late 90s, early noughties, that was a death sentence. 
It wasn't until the later 90s that the treatments came through. And so in the interim, the government got away with a quick settlement of not a lot of money, about £25,000, but varied depending on whether you had children, whether you were married, if you were a child yourself, or if your child had been infected. And they swept it under the rug. They didn't have a trial. They didn't want to talk about it. And they didn't want to provide hefty compensation. What happened is with new treatments, people survived. And so what started was a decades-long campaign to get a public inquiry. But as the years went on, successive institutions who weren't around in the 80s bought this line that it had all been a terrible accident and nothing could have been done differently. And that line persisted through the years with no inquiry to actually investigate if it was true. And then we end up with the kind of final element of this, which is that it is only in the last three years that we have finally had the one thing which we obviously have needed to have for decades, which is a proper and full public inquiry. And out of the kind of rogues gallery of pharmaceutical executives, politicians, officials, senior doctors, some people do emerge with honour. And one of those is Andy Burnham, who I think, reading between the lines, you probably think he's a really critical figure in finally getting us to the stage of having this public inquiry. Yeah, he was one of the politicians that he became Secretary of State for Health. And in his first year, he started to realise that documents that he was being given and briefings on how nothing had been done, on how no mistakes had been made and everything had been done as it should have been, he started to speak to campaigners and think that doesn't sound right. And he has actually kind of pursued that. And he's been very vocal about the fact that civil servants gave him briefing notes that contained falsehoods. And that that in itself, he has said, is a criminal act. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he's partly sensitised to that possibility because of his involvement with the Hillsborough families. Now, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theory, but... Reading the book, I was thinking, well, Andy Burnham is clearly somebody who has got to the position as a leader of having a kind of sensitivity to the fact that even if everyone around him is telling him something, he still needs to listen to people who are saying something different. That's a real skill, it seems to me, and one that's quite rare. Yes, he actually questioned it. To be fair to him as well, Jeremy Hunt did do that too, albeit later. And now campaigners have some issues with him because they are still awaiting compensation. And he has, as chancellor, has not been forthcoming with that. Yeah, and that's part of Jeremy Hunt's general commitment to patient safety. So I think that's the other thing here, which is that there's a set of kind of habits, leadership habits, that Jeremy Hunt listened to people who had suffered from medical negligence early on in his time as Secretary of State. And that meant that patient safety was a huge issue for him. And he was sensitive to the danger of cover-ups. And that, I guess, is one of the reasons why when at least he came to the inquiry, he was reasonably frank, recognised the things that had gone wrong. Similarly, Andy Burnham had that sensitivity. It seems to me this is a general kind of rule for leaders is always to be willing to question the advice that's being given to you, particularly when it comes to this and when there are other voices that you need to listen to. Now, we've nearly finished, Cara, but I want to ask you about the inquiry. It must be yet another blow to the survivors and the relatives of people who died that the inquiry outcome has been delayed again. It was due this autumn, wasn't it? What are you hoping for from the outcome of the inquiry? So I think the one ray of light that 
survivors and bereaved relatives have found with the delay in the inquiry is that it's because Sir Brian Langstaff, the chair, has said there are so many rights of reply that need to be gathered because the report will make that many criticisms that that has pushed back the timeline. And he actually really wanted to get it out sooner. He's very aware of how damaging it is that this keeps getting delayed. But I think that that is an indication that he will be very critical of many people. In his interim report, he said that there were mistakes at collective, systemic and individual levels. And so I think we are going to see a full array all the way from individual doctors, hospitals, up to government and ministerial figures. And that's not just at the time, but in the years that followed. The only thing that might be lacking is a real evisceration of the pharmaceutical companies because Sir Brian Langstaff's remit is Britain and he could only compel witnesses who were in the UK. So he only actually heard from two representatives of pharmaceutical companies. And so those American giants who are still running, Baxter, Bayer, and the offshoots where the sort of parts of those companies that made Factor 8 in the 80s now reside have provided statements to the inquiry, but not full evidence. And so that's what I think I really wanted to do with the poison line, is to show the doctors prescribed this medication and the politicians allowed it to be created, but it was the pharmaceutical companies that made it. And it was them that made it inordinately more likely to contain HIV and hepatitis C. By 1983, a doctor on the trial in America said all Factor Eight manufactured in America that year was contaminated with hepatitis and HIV. Yeah, and that's one of the many powerful things about the book is that you focus primarily on the experience of UK people and the, the stories and their testimony, but you do spend a lot of time taking us to America, taking us to the prison where the plasma is donated, taking us to courtrooms in America where cases were heard. So it's important to get that perspective. And as you say, the pharmaceutical companies are much more in the frame in that American conversation. Carl, thank you so much for coming on the programme. The Poison Line, a true story of death, deception and infected blood, as I said, is an incredibly powerful book. And I would strongly recommend that people read it, partly just to understand the story of what went wrong and what people went through, but also because for anyone who's a leader, wants to be a leader, it is full of cautionary tales. Cara, thank you so much. Thank you very much. In my job, I quite often get sent letters from people who feel they've been badly treated in the NHS. Now, we're at the Confed, not really the right body for these letters to come to. And having read Cara's book and understanding a little more how people can be ignored, how leaders can fail to hear the truth, I think in future I'm going to read those letters just a bit more carefully and respectfully. Staying vigilant to the fact that sometimes things go very wrong is surely part of our responsibility as leaders. Goodbye. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.